0: with me. Gracious God, come here to hear from your word this morning. And Father, I pray that each heart in here would be eager to hear from your word. Father, that we would not be thinking about what's coming next afterward. Lord, that we would not be consumed with uh, the work week that we've just gotten finished with. Lord, please captivate our hearts, captivate our minds Lord, I pray that we would worship you, that I would worship you by your grace as I preach and that the congregation that is here would worship you as they listen and engage as we listen and as I preach, Father God, be glorified. May you do everything here today, changing hearts, changing lives for your glory because you are worthy, God because of who you are and because of what you've done through Christ for us. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In many ways, we live in a pornified culture, a pornified culture as it's been called. Sexually explicit images, themes, and innuendos surround us in our world, our country, our city, even our homes. In fact, it's so familiar to our lives that on many fronts, it's less shocking. And we have learned to accept it. We see it on television and we see it on the movie screen, but we also see it in advertisements, whether on billboards and newspapers or on the banners across the top of our computer screens as we're checking our email or Facebook It's on the magazine rack when we check out at the grocery store, blown up to massive proportions in store windows at the mall, and it's reflected in the clothing that the designers make for our young ladies and our women. It's at sporting events, used as perverse decoration on pickup trucks and plastered all over the the greeting card aisle aisle at Walmart and at Target. I just wanted to go get a Father's Day card for my dad recently, and, and there it is, just You know, you're looking for a card, an appropriate card for your father, and it's on the greeting card aisle. And that's really just what's out there that we don't have to look for, that we don't have to go looking for. It's, It's out there as we live our lives. If we want to go looking for porn, you can access it at a much deeper level, in all of its wickedness, with a few clicks of the mouse. We live in a pornified culture. So it can be extremely easy for us to blame the culture, uh, to blame pornography for our lust and our sexual sins. But I want you to listen to the words of one Ted Bundy, uh, just hours before his execution for multiple counts of murder. Many, many of you may have heard this interview. Uh, James Dobson went in um, to his prison and interviewed him just you know, less than 24 hours before he was executed. And he, he wanted to talk to him about what led him to commit the atrocities that he committed. Ted Bundy, by admission, is a guy who grew, grew up in a healthy home. He called it a healthy home. I just want to read a few sentences for you from this interview. He says, I grew up in a wonderful home with two dedicated and loving parents as one of five brothers and sisters. We, as children, were the focus of my parents' lives. We regularly attended church. My parents did not drink or smoke or gamble. There was no physical abuse or fighting in the home. It was a fine, solid Christian home. As a young boy of 12 or 13, I encountered outside the home in the local grocery and drugstores softcore pornography. And this is the last sentence I want to share with you. Uh, He says, before we go any further, it is important to me that people believe what I'm saying. I'm not blaming pornography. I'm not saying it caused me to go out and to do certain things. I take full responsibility for all the things that I've done. These words clearly reflect exactly what Jesus is preaching in our text for this morning. When it comes to sexual sin, pornography, culture, is not the ultimate problem. It's our hearts. It's lust. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30 for our text this morning. Now, many of you know that each time the elders give me the opportunity to preach, uh, I've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, text by text. And um, we come to this text on lust and how we address lust today. And the, the context that we're in right now has Jesus revealing the correct interpretation of God's law. The correct interpretation of God's law. Since for, for quite some time, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day had been interpreting the law and teaching it wrongly as a law that just needed to be um, obeyed externally, on the outside instead of on the inside as well. And interpreting the law correctly, that is as a law to be obeyed inwardly and outwardly, what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a CAT scan report. He's given us a CAT scan report that shows the hopeless amount of spiritual cancer that's inside of us that no human effort, no human formula or human philosophy can address or fix. It is a cancer with only one cure. The righteousness that only comes from God through Jesus Christ. Read along with me, if you will, starting in verse 27, our text this morning. Jesus says, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He's revealing here the true nature of the law of God by saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I'm the ultimate authority when it comes to interpreting the law because I'm God and I wrote it. It's to be obeyed from the inside out. It's to be obeyed from the inside inside out. And um, we see here in our text two points, two main points. If you're taking notes, uh, write these down. Two main points that we're going to be discussing this morning. And they are, number one, lust is a matter of the heart. Lust is a matter of the heart. And number two, lust requires drastic action. Lust is a matter of the heart and lust requires drastic action. Let's jump in to the first point here. Lust is the matter of the heart. And we saw this, if you remember, uh, last time I preached, we saw this in the previous text. Someone who is angry with his brother has the same heart as a murderer, Christ says. In the same way, someone who looks at another person lustfully, that person has the same heart as an adulterer, according to Jesus. And as good evangelical Christians Adultery is one of those sins that we have put in a category over here of the bad sins, the, the big sins, if you will. It's in the category of big sins. The, the sins we say, I'll never go there. I, I, that's beyond me. I will never do that thing. But Jesus is saying essentially that if you desire the same thing that an adulterer desires, then you are guilty of failing to obey this commandment as well. And if you are, if you have failed to obey this commandment from the inside out, then you too need Jesus. Just as much as the person who commits adultery because you have the same heart whenever you lust. You have the same heart as someone who actually goes out and commits the act of adultery. Adultery begins in the heart. Not in the culture. Our culture is a pornified culture because as sinful humans, we have given vent to the lust in our hearts so that it is embedded into the fibers of our society. And it is manifested out in the open for our eyes to see. We made the pornified culture, we made it. It did not make us. And we can see this. Uh, this principle with perfect accuracy. If you turn with me to James chapter one, James chapter one, verses 14 and 15. It's a text that many of you are going to know, but let's turn there and just look with me at what James has to say about where sin comes from. James writes, starting in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Carry away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. For Ted Bundy, physical death literally resulted from his own lust in his own heart, and it could happen to us as well if we don't keep ourselves in check. There isn't a single person in this room who hasn't lusted after another person. So we all have broken this commandment. Therefore, we cannot bring ourselves to God in perfect purity. We can't. That ship has sailed. We cannot bring ourselves to God in perfect purity, which is what he requires. Which is why Jesus, in revealing the true nature of the law, is laying us bare. You can't obey this law in and of yourself. You need me. You need my righteousness. And he gave it to us. Whenever he died on the cross, took our punishment on that cross, took our place on that cross. And as we believe through faith, that, that righteousness, it is, it is attributed to us. It is transferred to us judicially as we trust that his life, death, and resurrection alone can save. So Jesus is laying us bare. He's showing us that we can't do this. We need Jesus. We need uh, the cross. We need his righteousness in order to have access to God and relationship with him. But this is not the only reason that Jesus is revealing the true nature of the law. He said in chapter five, if you go back with me to Matthew, turn back to Matthew, uh, a text we've already looked at in this series is Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Beyond the law revealing our desperate need for Jesus, Jesus is demonstrating that the law still has purpose for us even after we have trusted in Christ for salvation. Why? Because the law becomes, after we've trusted in Christ, becomes our guide for life. What we turn to to see what God's will is for us, what we need to pursue in order to please the God who gave us salvation and the God who gave us life. It becomes a guide for our lives. Therefore, even as Christians who've been completely forgiven of our sins, we must strive to abstain from adultery, both in heart and in life. And by the way, I I think that this principle should also be applied uh, more broadly to all other types of sexual sin as well, not just adultery, but all types of sexual sin because really fornication of any kind has lust at its root in the heart. So, as Christians, if we're going to live by the law so that we can please our king with our lives, then we've got to understand what exactly this commandment is prohibiting. What is this commandment prohibiting in our hearts? Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman with lust, anyone who looks at a woman with lust, this literally means to look with intent to lust to look with intent to lust. What does this mean? What does this mean? I I think in order to understand this, we need to talk about what it doesn't mean first. What it doesn't mean first. There's there's an excellent book. If you don't know uh, about it, it's very helpful. I found it very um, discerning when I was thinking about this issue. It's by Joshua Harris, um, who many of us know, the pastor of Covenant Life Church in Maryland. He wrote this book called Sex is Not the Problem, Lust Is. And I think even in the title alone, it helps us when we're thinking about this issue. Okay, so what, what is he saying? He's saying here that when considering lust, sex in and of itself is not a bad, gross, disgusting, immoral thing, which is what a lot of Christians have made it out to be. God made physical intimacy, For our enjoyment inside the covenant of marriage. For his glory, by the way. To be enjoyed for his glory. As a sinful people, we've pursued it and we've experienced it outside the confines in which God does bless it. Marriage. And therefore, we've tainted it. We've distorted it. And we've made it an aberration of what God intended it to be. So with that in mind... Knowing, understanding that, that sex is something God made for us to enjoy inside the confines of marriage, and it's not in and of itself bad. Let's think about what lust is not before we discuss what it is. Number one, if you're taking notes, what lust is not? It's not lust to notice that someone is pretty or handsome or beautiful. And it's not that. It's not to notice that someone is pretty or handsome or beautiful. Number two, it is not lust to desire physical intimacy itself. The the desire for that alone is not lust. Number three, it's not lust to anticipate and be excited about physical intimacy inside of marriage. To look forward to that and look forward to that as a blessing that God has reserved inside marriage. Number four, It's not lust to experience sexual temptation, to be tempted sexually. It's not lust either. So what is it then? What is lust? Well, in his book, this book uh, that Joshua Harris wrote, Sex is Not the Problem, Lust Is, he says it this way. Uh, He actually quotes John Piper who says it this way. He says, Lust is sexual desire without honor, And without holiness, sexual desire, without honor and without holiness. What does he mean? It means that when, when we lust, we are not honoring uh, men and women, the the, the people we lust after. We're not honoring them. We're not holding them. We're not respecting them, holding them in high regard, considering them more important than ourselves. We're not honoring them. And it's without holiness because uh, we are not uh, honoring God. We are not looking to please God. We are not looking to be the people that God wants us to be when we lust. That's what lust is. Lust is to desire sex in a way that God has prohibited it. And unless we enjoy physical intimacy inside of marriage, He has prohibited it. Lust is intentional, lust looks repeatedly. Lust fantasizes and explores what it would be like. Lust paints mental pictures. Lust believes the lie. Listen, lust believes the lie that sex is better when enjoyed immediately, without commitment, outside of marriage, with whomever you want. It's a lie. God has made us, and in his design of us, he he made us to enjoy physical intimacy a certain way when it's done his way inside of marriage. He knows what's best for us and when we're going to enjoy physical intimacy the most because he designed us that way. He said, you, you're going to enjoy it in marriage. I know I made you to enjoy it the most in marriage. And every time we enjoy it someplace else in our hearts, as we act it out, then... We are, it's just a distortion, an aberration, an empty a, th- a thing that's really void of true and lasting joy. Now, I have a friend, in order to explain this a little um, uh, more helpfully, I have a friend who builds computers. Builds computers, let's say he builds me one, he builds me a computer, and and building me a, a computer, he gives me an instruction manual and a maintenance manual. Why did he give this instruction manual to me? Because as the one who built the computer, he knows it intimately, right? He understands the inner workings of the machine because he chose each part specifically, and he put each part in its specific place. So I start looking through the manual in order to get everything hooked up and and get it started. And I get frustrated because it's like 50 pages long. And so I just chuck it out the window and start doing things my own way. Yeah, we, who's ever done that in this room, okay? Yeah. So I chuck out the window. I, was like, I just want to get on and check my email. That's all I want to do, and he's making it difficult for me. So I start, you know, plugging in wires into, into holes that fit, and turn it on. It magically turns on, and everything kind of goes well at first. But then the computer starts running slowly, and I can't get certain programs to open up, right? So what do I do? I'm like, wow, well, you know, my neighbor, he's got a computer too. And he's always talking about what a computer geek he is. I bet he knows. I bet he knows what I need to do. So you call up your neighbor. And, you know, he's, he's not helpful. You try what he tries, and it just makes things worse. And so you get frustrated again, and, you, you know, you want to take a, a Louisville slugger to the computer screen. And then you remember the instruction manual. My friend who made the computer gave me the instruction manual. And so you go back and do, or I go back and do, what I should have done in the first place, which is start with page one and move to the end, to page 50, so I can get the computer hooked up right, so it runs the way it should be running, and so I can have the most pleasurable computing experience possible. Yes, it may be more time-consuming, to go through each man, go each uh, go through the manual page by page. It's more time consuming. Maybe it's uh, not ideal in terms of the immediacy, but the maker of the computer knows it best, and it will be worth it in the end. Don't we do the same thing? Sex. God's way seems too long. God's way seems too frustrating. So we do what we want. And we end up getting burned. And then when we need comfort or consolation, we turn to the world, which perpetuates the problem. If we would just trust that God is a loving Father who always gives good gifts to His children, and because He has designed us, He knows when and under what circumstances we will get the most joy out of physical intimacy, then we will be extremely blessed. Extremely blessed when we get to enjoy Sex is a gift on his terms. We need to commit, church, to sticking to the manual, sticking to the instruction manual written by the one who created us and, as a matter of fact, created physical intimacy. Now, men, we know that temptation in this area most often comes with sight, visual stimuli, right and advertising agencies know this which is why we're bombarded constantly with images everywhere that are meant to awaken lust inside of us you know i dare say for most men this is a daily battle it's a daily thing that we have to struggle with and at times the battle is fierce for many men however lust isn't a battle at all because they just give into it it's not a struggle For many men, the battle was left behind a long time ago. Lust has destroyed innumerable families and left innumerable men empty, miserable, and chasing after the wind. But we too often reserve the issue of lust as a sin for men only, okay, Uh, when it's something that women need to address in their hearts as well. And so uh, I want this to be directed at both males and females. And so let me just talk briefly about some of the things that may, um, awaken lust in a woman's heart. If we look to the culture, we can see these kinds of things that, um, are meant to appeal to a woman's lust. It's called by some emotional pornography, emotional pornography. So let me read a description of what I'm talking about from an article I read recently. Uh, The, uh, the article is called the dangers of emotional pornography says this, just as there is sexual excitement surrounding the mystery and allure of what flesh might be seen in a movie known for its racy reputation, so too are we drawn in with an anticipation for the emotional and physical high of a romance film. As a result, we're taught to crave the moment of romantic ecstasy or to live for the wedding day. We're raised to think that these are the real stories of love and relationship and we're confused when they are so far, or few and far between. And then we aren't sustained by them. So we turn back to that which led us to believe in this fantasy all along and we're left with an old woman sitting alone in her love seat in front of the television watching her stories. Kids eventually understand that, pim- that pumpkins don't turn to glass carriages and fairy godmothers don't grant wishes. But many girls never grow out of the idea that one day they will be rescued from reality by some magic and fictitious prince. It's the idea of the soulmate, right? Or the ideal man who is every single thing you want. Or it's the kind of romance that you see in Romeo and Juliet where, where the two characters cannot live without each other. This is why the uh, the Twilight books and movies are so popular today because women and girls are attracted to this obsessive romance and this neediness that the characters have for one another. And it's tempting. It's alluring. These are often the things that awaken lust in the heart of a woman. Therefore, all of us, men and women, are guilty of committing heart adultery. Which is why we all need to listen to Jesus when he says... This requires drastic action. It requires drastic action. Lust needs to be addressed radically. So let's turn to number two, our second point this morning. Lust requires drastic, drastic action. In response to the lust in our hearts, Jesus tells us to pluck out our eye, our right eye, and cut off our right hand and throw them away. Why? Why? He says, it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for, you, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And it, this, this sounds insane at first. I mean, I can't even give myself eye drops, okay? And he's saying, pluck out your eye, all right? And, and cut off your hand. So obviously, though... Jesus is not commanding us to self-mutilation in order to prevent lust. He's not asking for that. He's being figurative. The eye here represents the medium through which we, acts, or through which we lust. The eye is the medium through which we lust, okay? And the hand represents uh, all the actions of lust that are played out. And the fact that Jesus is speaking of the right eye and the right hand is also pertinent because it was the belief in that culture that the right side was more important than the left side. So what Jesus is saying here, um, because the right eye and the right hand were to be cherished, he's saying essentially that if there's something in your life that is influencing you towards lust, it's helping you lust, if you will, then get rid of it. No matter how valuable or important it may be to you, if it is helping you and encouraging you to lust, cut it off, throw it away from yourself. It's not worth it. Get rid of it. What is, what is more important than seeking to honor God in this life? Seeking to honor the God who, who gave us life and salvation? Is anything more important is, is anything so important that we, shouldn't, that we should not choose it over God? Is there anything that's more important than offering up to God a pure heart? No, there's not. Offering up to God a pure heart, that's the, that should be the goal of our lives. There's nothing more important than that. So we can, we can throw away the things that are helping us lust and get rid of them, even if they're extremely important or valuable to us. So let's do some self-evaluation here. We need to radically cut off the things in our lives that are encouraging us to lust. So it's time for you to ask yourself some questions. Okay, not out loud, but to yourself. What things help you to lust? What things help to awaken lust in your heart? What things do you need to cut off and throw away from your life? Now, please realize, I'm not saying that you need to, to cut yourself off from society, that you need to go you know, bunk up with the, the monks at the monastery. I'm not saying that, okay? Because we're called to mission. We're called to obey the great commission. To the, we're, we're to go to the lost, make disciples, teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. I understand that. Um, but what I'm saying is, while we're complaining about how hard it is to swim, all the while, we've got, a cinder block tied to our legs. And the the stupid thing is that we tied the cinder block on our legs and we're the ones who got in the pool with it on. (laughs) We made the choices. We put the cinder block there and we got in the pool with the cinder block on us. We made the choices. There are things in our lives that are helping us sin that we put there. And we can take them off. We can get rid of them. If we put them there, we can get rid of them. By God's grace. So, where are your cinder blocks? Is my question. Are they the movies or television shows you watch? Are there characters or themes in those shows that fuel your lust? And you know, maybe you say, well, you know, my entertainment's really not a problem. I do a good job of keeping that in check. The things I see, I don't really struggle with those things. Um, but l- let me give you a warning, especially to guys. You may not have a problem during the day. You know, you watch a show, you watch a movie, there's something on the computer you you watch and it's not a big deal for you. You don't really struggle with that. But what tends to happen is the things that we put in our minds and things we put in our hearts during the day come out in our dreams, okay? And that can be something that helps us lust as well because, you know, we're not awake and alert Whenever we're, we're dreaming, we're, you know things are playing out in our minds, and we're not—we're not—we uh, don't have this spiritual awareness that we do when we're awake. So be careful there too. Be careful of what you put in your mind and in your heart. If it's helping you lust, cut it off. Where are your cinder blocks? Are they the places you go? I, I you know, I realize that we need to be out in the world sharing the gospel. We need to be on mission to the city, but. Are there places you go that are not necessary, okay? Places you go where you consistently encounter uh, lustful images or lustful themes, and you don't have to be there. It's a choice of yours. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Are the cinder blocks in your life the people you choose to surround yourself with, now, the, the friends, the acquaintances? Are your cinder blocks the websites you check Regularly. The internet, you know, the internet is so much a part of our lives. It's so uh, a part of our culture now that it's so easy to justify being on the internet way too long because it's it's part of how we communicate. It's how we do what we do in this society. Here's the kicker, though: when we're on the internet, you don't have to go to pornographic websites to have your lust fueled. You don't have to go there. Uh, there there are advertisements on all your favorite sites. Ads that say things like, check out the singles in your area or see who's searching for you. Those kind of things. And those phrases combined with an image of a person of the opposite sex is dangerous. It's dangerous. Those images often just show a woman's face, but there's a seductive look that she's posing. And that's all that it requires sometimes to arouse lust in our hearts. To be careful on the internet too. Put filters on there, you know, don't, you don't have to check. I mean, even, even Yahoo, I found out with, with Yahoo, you don't even have to use Yahoo. If there are things you see there that are arousing lust in your heart, don't use Yahoo for email. Use, um, what is it called? It's, uh, the, the Microsoft, what's the version? What's it called? Um, Outlook, use Outlook. You don't have to see anything. It's just, you know, words should be helpful for some of us. So what is, what are your cinder blocks? Cut them off. Swim. What are the things in your life that are hindering you from offering God a pure heart? Cut them off, get rid of them, and replace them with something that's going to help you offer to God a pure heart. Put off and put on, right? According to Jesus, it doesn't really matter how uncomfortable losing these things may make you feel or how much pain you might feel in losing these things. He, He wants you to radically get rid of them. In order to please God in this life, in, in terms of resources, what do we need? We need God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we need the Bible. Okay? We don't need anything else in order to please God. Okay? We, we, the, the rest of the things we think we need, they're expendable in terms of you know our, our entertainment, the places we go, things like that. They're, they're expendable. Nothing's more important than pleasing God and offering up to him a pure heart. And you say, so I can't enjoy things that are not essential to my purpose in life, which is pleasing God? You say, I can't enjoy things that are non-essential for me, pleasing God? No, I'm not saying that. Yeah, we can enjoy things that are non-essential, okay? But not if they're encouraging sin in your life, not if they're, they're uh, provoking you to sin consistently. No, you can't. Not according to Jesus because sin is to be addressed radically. You know, something else to notice here is what this drastic action says about the sinfulness of sin and the need we have to guard ourselves from it. The sinfulness of sin, the evil, the wickedness of sin. If Christ is telling us to pluck out our eye and cut off our, our hand, if it encourages sin, then sin isn't some kind of spiritual zit on the outside of our souls, okay? It's not some kind of spiritual zit on the outside of our souls. It's a spiritual cancer that eats away from the inside. And that's why it requires such drastic action to address it. You don't put ointment on cancer. Okay, you don't do that because it's deadly. So you take much more drastic action. You cut it out requires surgery. Joseph understood this in Genesis 39. Joseph understood this. In Genesis 39, you can turn there if you want to. I'm going to be talking about a few of the points there. But in Genesis 39, Joseph is the slave of a guy named Potiphar, who has put him in charge of his entire household. Joseph is a slave. Potiphar puts him in charge of his entire estate, And the text tells us that Joseph is a handsome man. And Potiphar's wife begins to seduce him. He denies her like a man of God should, but she's persistent. And so the text tells us she tried day after day to seduce him, but this is great. The text says he wouldn't even listen to her. He wouldn't even listen to her. She's persistent. She's tenacious, and he would not even listen to her. But finally, one day, while he's working in the house and no one else is in the house, she gets forceful. She grabs him and demands that he go to bed with her. So what does Joseph do? He turns hightail and runs out of that house, leaving his garment in her hand. Joseph had a lot to lose by running away that day. Okay, he had a lot to lose. Yeah, he was a slave, but his master trusted him. And and his master put him in charge of his entire estate. And this woman, his wife, could make life very hard for him. And he left his garment behind in her hand to use as evidence against him. She could create any story she wanted to and get him thrown away in prison. And certainly he does get thrown away in prison. The first time Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph, something's revealed. Why did Joseph run out that day? He didn't, he didn't go back and say, hey, that's my favorite garment, my favorite cloak. Can I please have it back? No, he left the garment in her hand, took off, ran out of the house. Why did he do that? Why, why, why such drastic action? Why, why would he go to ex- such extreme measures and just get out of there, risking you know, losing his trust with his master and losing his position and risk being thrown into prison? Why would he do that? Well, the first time Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, he reveals it. In verse nine, he says, how then can I do this great evil and sin against God? How then can I do this? Could I do this great evil and sin against God? Every time we lust, we break God's commandment against adultery. And this sin It's a direct offense to God, a holy, righteous, good God who loves us. And his law, it's not just a law in and of itself. It represents who he is. This law represents his character, his attributes. And so when we sin, we directly offend him. If you remember adults as a kid going over to a friend's house, and uh, when, you, when you got there to maybe to spend the afternoon or the evening with your friend and his family, there were certain rules that you had to uh, obey and, and hold to while you were there, um, while you're spending time at that house, certain rules of the household. Um, you know, I was always more fearful of disobeying those rules than I was of any rule at a local pool or a local park or something like that. Why? Why? Because there were people associated with these rules at my friend's house. People I respected. People that cared for me. These parents came up with the rules of the household. And, and those rules represented who they were. And the choices they had made for the direction of their family. The rules represented them and their choices. At the pool, you know, for me, I was like, well. there's lifeguards here. But, you know, they're enforcing these, these rules. But they didn't come up with these rules. They're just enforcing them to get a paycheck. Now, I think about, well, there's, there's, here's the park, and there are signs at the park, but there's nobody around. But with the rules of the household, my friend, that my friend's parents had, were tied to them. They were tied to the parents, associated with them. They came up with them. They chose them specifically. And to, to break one of those rules was to offend them personally. In a similar way, but on a much greater scale. When we break God's law, we are saying to God, You aren't worthy of my honor. And I don't want to be like you. This is why sin leads to hell, like Jesus is saying here in this text. Because sin is against God. And God is holy and awesome and good and righteous. And He loves us and He's perfect. Sin, here, this is important. Listen, sin is so bad. Because God is so infinitely good and awesome. Sin is so bad because God is so good and sin is against him personally. Because we're breaking a law that represents who he is. And there's a lot of people who believe it's unthinkable that that God would send someone to hell. I mean, for them, that, that there is anything bad enough for a human to do to merit eternal suffering and agony. They just don't get that. When people think like that, though, they are not seeing things from God's perspective. They're only seeing things from their own perspective. They will look at a person who habitually looks at porn and say, so what? No one's gotten hurt. Or they'll look at someone who habitually blows up at people out of anger and say, give the guy a break. He's had a hard life. They could say these things because they're not directly affected each time these people sin, but God is directly affected every time everyone sins. You see that God is directly affected every time everyone sins because we're breaking a law that he established that represents him. And you know what? He created us. So he knows exactly what's going to bring us the most joy. And that's represented in the law. And so it's like we're slapping his hand away and saying, no, you're not right. You don't know what's good. I know what's better. You know, And not only that, he's revealed this way of living where we can get the most joy out of life. He's revealed it to us on our conscience through his word. Sin is so bad because God is so good and his law represents who he is. When we break it, it defends him deeply and severely. I hope that helps you understand why Jesus is telling us that sin leads to hell here. But in this sermon, though, Jesus is helping us. He's helping us here by pointing us toward himself for salvation and away from the path of sin, which leads to hell. He tells us in our text that it is better to lose your eye or your hand than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What does he mean? What do you mean by this? He means that there is nothing in this life so valuable that you shouldn't chuck it out the window if it is helping you sin and leading you to hell. There's nothing so valuable. I mean, you're, he's saying, you know, your eye is important. The eye was important. The right eye especially was important. The right hand was especially important. So what things are encouraging you to sin they are not more valuable Then, well, God's glory, first and foremost, but your own soul, not more valuable than your own soul. And it being subject to torment for eternity. Even for those who believe they are saved, if they continue down the road of sin, no matter how righteous they may think that they are on the outside, they prove themselves to have never received salvation at all. If they continue down that road to sin, even if it's mostly mostly it can't be seen by anybody who looks at their lives from the outside, but God knows what's going on on the inside. And as Jesus has been revealing to us, sin is a matter of the heart. You follow that path, it leads to hell. Now, listen to the striking quote from John MacArthur: Many men and women go to hell forever because of the deception of self-righteous religion. The illusion that sin is only an external issue is damning. you following sin in your heart. Maybe you look like you got it together on the outside, but what is true of your heart? What would God say if he was here? What would he say of your heart? You need Jesus. You can't trust in your, your religion, On the outside, you need Jesus, his righteousness, because his righteousness is the only real righteousness. Your righteousness is an illusion. You need him. You need him to grant it to you, to transfer it to you judicially through faith in him. And that comes to the person who crawls to him and pleads with him for mercy, and he will gladly give it. Now, let me close with this. As a Christian, getting rid of externals, entertainment, people, places, those things, is not going to solve your lust problem. It's not going to solve your lust problem because as Jesus has made clear, lust is a matter of the heart. Therefore, the remedy must be applied to the heart. You have a lust problem. You know, getting rid of your computer is not going to solve the problem, okay? Getting rid of, uh, you know, your TV is not going to solve the problem. You know, going to different places isn't going to solve the problem because you still have your heart with you. So the remedy needs to be applied to the heart. I'm talking to Christians here who's, who, who've been saved by grace. The remedy is a matter of belief. It's a matter of belief. It's a matter of what you believe. Do you believe that God, in commanding you to abstain from lust, is commanding you towards something very good for you? Because every time we lust, we're thinking we know it's best for us. That we're going to get more joy out of doing it our way, following that fantasy, looking at that sight, going the extra mile towards sin. We're believing a lie every time we choose sin. We're believing a lie that that's going to bring us most the most joy, that we're going to get more pleasure out of that instead of doing it God's way, which is abstaining from lust. So it's a matter of belief. Do you believe? Jesus, when he says that God knows how to give good gifts to his children. He's always giving you good gifts. Constantly giving you good gifts because he sees you through Christ and his righteousness. He's not going to give you something that's bad for you. He's he's only going to give that which is good. Do you trust him? If, If you're young and you want to be married, God is giving you something very good in waiting and abstaining from lust. If you want to get married and you never do get married, even then God is being good to you. He is giving you something very good in waiting and, and he's very giving you something very good in the single life. If you are married to the same person for all uh, for the rest of your life, God is giving you something very good and staying faithful to that person for the rest of your life with your heart and with your life. And you have a lifetime of that kind of love, those kinds of good gifts. Here, you believe God. It's a matter of belief. You believe this commandment. You think that God is punishing you by asking you to abstain from lust. He's not punishing you. He knows what's best for you because he made you. I want to close with this last sentence. I'm going to read it twice because I think it's important. God is the happiest of beings. He's the happiest of all beings. And if His law represents who He is, then as you pursue that law, you're pursuing the same happiness. Let me say it again God is the happiest of all beings. And if his law represents who he is, then as you pursue that law, you're pursuing the same happiness. He gives good gifts to his children. Trust him. Let's pray. God, help us to believe your truth. Please, we are, we, are, we believe, help our unbelief, God. Help us to believe daily your promises and to stop believing the lies that our flesh is telling us, our hearts are telling us. Help us to stop believing the lies that the world and Satan are telling us. And may we trust that you are not asking us to do anything that's going to punish us. You're asking us to do things. You're commanding us to do things that are good for us and good for you in terms of giving glory to you. Thank you, God, that you're a God who gives good gifts to his children the best gifts to his children. I pray you'd help us to remember this this week in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.